Lead Time is a podcast of the Unite Leadership Collective, hosted by Tim Allman and Jack Kalliberg. Lead Time taps into biblical wisdom for practical solutions to today's burning issues. Each podcast confronts real-time struggles facing the local church in a post-Christian culture. Step into the action with the ULC at uniteleadership.org. This is Lead Time. Welcome to Lead Time. Tim Allman here with Jack Kalberg. I pray that wherever you are, that the joy of the Lord is your strength, that your baptismal identity as a blood-bought son or daughter of the King is strong, and that you are living with the fruit of the Spirit being present in your life. Love, joy, kindness, patience, etc., self-control, all the things that are good, that are gifts from from God. Today we're blessed to have Noah Hahn, um, a... Uh, a graduate student in medieval philosophy, also a son of uh, the LCMS. And uh, Noah and Jack and I just got to meet one another. So uh, you're going to, you're in for a treat with the man who has uh, strong opinions. Um, but a, a kindness, and I can already tell in hanging out with you for a couple minutes, a, a kindness and a humility to just want to, to grow. And so a little bit of context. We're trying with lead time and specifically uh, as a podcast, the Unite Leadership Collective to bring diverse opinions. Um, and I hope we can be strong, uh, truthful, connected to the Word of God and our Lutheran confessions, and and to work toward unity, uh, John 17, as much as possible in this crazy, chaotic day, where Lutherans, no matter on what side of our small little theological spectrum you may find yourself today as a confessing <laughs> missional, we would say all Lutherans are confessing and mission-minded, because that's the, the narrative of Scripture. But I pray that we can have conversations like the one we're going to have today so that we can learn uh, with curiosity rather than than condemnation. And so, Noah, thanks so much for being on Lead Time. Uh, tell us a little bit of your ministry story as we get to know one another better, but buddy. Thank you. Sure. Um, like my, my church background or sort of what I do? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And so, moving I mean, toward your profession. Yeah, for sure. Sure, sure. Well, what I'm interested in is, is getting Lutherans to do philosophy and that involves, you know, careful logical analysis of positions. That's something that I see so uh, lacking in the synod, and I see it all over the board. You know, you can you can come out and uh, condemn a bunch of things, and uh, Dr. Ferry talked about that a bit. You know, we're we're very strong in what we're against, and in some ways, I think that's true. You know, we, we might denounce critical race theory, we might denounce the alt right. Um, but we got to be clear on what we're talking about here. Otherwise, you're just going to butt heads. You're going to uh, we're not going to get anywhere. So um, bringing clarity to people and helping them to think through what do I think? Why do I think it? Where might I be wrong? Where might I be right? And, and you know, getting people to the point where we can carefully analyze and then have a discussion. Tell mm-hmm. me tell me about your home growing up, Noah, like was robust philosophical theological discussion something that was just natural in your home or how did you come to this <laughs> this passion this is beautiful well i would say uh in a sense i sort of fell into this stuff this crazy philosophy stuff by necessity uh, i was sort of a, a kid who was plagued by sort of um extreme doubt extreme skepticism uh in my house we had uh, a dinner table sort of conversation that that would be regular and as we got older it got more intense you know we finished dinner and now we're going to sit there for an hour and a half talking about 
you know, something in the church that's bothering us, something in our spiritual lives that's bothering us. And, you know, my dad would lead us through it. We would talk and argue about it. And then, uh, you know, at the end, we'd all go sit down and then argue about what movie to watch. And it's it's wonderful. <laughs> I, my family is the number one influence on my faith. I, I say that, you know, without question. And I'm blessed to have them. So what do you love most about, you know, the, the LCMS? I'm a third generation LCMS pastor. Uh, it, I'm a part of the family. Right. And sometimes families can have, uh, you know, conversation or disagreement, but I'm not going to leave the I'm not going to leave the family. Right. I mean, this is this is who I, God has placed me to do life. So why why do you um, love being a part of the LCMS family, Noah? Well, what I really love is my own congregation and and you know that's where it really matters is on the ground mm-hmm. in terms of the LCMS organization. I mean, I, it's a useful thing. You know, um, God doesn't say you have to have, you know, such and such a structure, district presidents uh, or whatever. Um, But, you know, what I like about the LCMS family, I guess, or the organization is it brings people together who share the same confession. And as long as it does that, it's doing its job. Of course, there are always problems with institutional inertia. Um, The benefits of a system are often conducive to the downfalls. But um, uh, it's a it's a it's really an economically useful uh, enterprise because we can we can pair our money together and stuff like that. And it also serves, a, I suppose, a supervisory role, or it's at least supposed to, um, to to make sure we're doing things in line with scripture. And as long as the LCMS is doing that, I think it's a, a worthy place to be. Hey, hey Noah, yeah. so you, you grew up uh, LCMS, is that correct? I did. I did. Yeah. Um, I've I've seriously considered, you know, going other places, you know, growing up, we were around a lot of independent Baptists. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there was some attractive things there. Then I come to a Catholic school and I thought, oh, you know, Rome looks nice. And it was never just like sort of an <laughs> aesthetic thing. Like it looks nice. It's like, oh, maybe, maybe the Pope is actually the vicar of Christ. I have to take that seriously. Maybe people <laughs> really do decide to convert yeah. uh, to believe in Jesus. And, and wow. So I have to take this seriously. I, you know, but yes, so, I've been raised Lutheran and I, I still am. So a little bit about my background is um, I was baptized Lutheran, but I was raised Pentecostal. Um, and my pastor's so, that way too. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so um, I guess what I would say is that that experience kind of gives me both a, an outsider and an insider kind of view of, of the denomination that we're in. And I, I really have a tremendous appreciation for our theology. Um mm-hmm. And I don't mean this to disparage um, pe- people who have other denominational backgrounds. We, I want to express love and respect to people, but my personal experience in the, in that background um, really it it really caused me to be unchurched for many years. And so I spent much of my life as a Christian, not affiliated with any church, not affiliated with any denomination, periodically reading the Bible, kind of believing in Jesus, but not being like tremendously uh, well taught in what that meant. And um, it was, it was trying out actually Christ Greenfield for the first time coming to this church, hearing a pastor just preach the gospel that was so refreshing to me just saying, and it was almost like, an aha moment that you could actually just have an experience with somebody just preaching the gospel, just taking, we're taking the text and we're preaching it and we're, you know, hearing actual law gospel being presented. It just was so uplifting to me that it really compelled me to, to 
and become a member a member of the LCMS. I really felt like they had an incredible grasp of what was going on in Scripture. So, uh, but that's not how everybody sees uh, what we believe. What do you think, outsiders? So let's just kind of because you're dealing with a lot of people. It sounds like as you're teaching. What do you think outsiders, not an insider to the LCMS, but an outsider sees when they look at an, an, an LCMS Lutheran or any kind of Lutheran, I guess, is confessional Lutheran? It, it really depends on who the outsider is. You know, there's, there's people who live and they see a Lutheran church and they think, okay, this is a German place. My, my congregation is historically Slovak. And in our town, there was a German church and a Slovak church. It was just ethnic. And that's how it was. But, you know, the people in the community, they, they view it as a social institution. They, you know, oh, there's the social club, there's the food bank, and there's the church. Young people might look at it and say, this is kind of a boomer organization. Or they might look at it and say, this is just another religion. And then depending on their biases, they'll notice other things. Like, they might think, okay, this is the homophobic church, because they care about that. Or they might think, this is the liturgical church because they have a bias towards contemporary, or they might think this is a contemporary church because they have a bias towards the Latin mass. It really depends. So that, that generalization, I don't know if it's helpful. Mm. No, I think that's, that yeah. is great. Um, you, you told us you're focusing right now in your, uh, um, Ma- is it a master's or are you getting a PhD in medieval philosophy? Yeah. So I've got the, I've got the master's I'm working on the PhD. I'm focusing on medieval, but, um, I also have a sort of a love for the hermeneutical tradition. So Gadamer is a big influence wow. on me and uh, Aquinas, really. And yeah. and a lot of the Lutherans who were doing philosophy in the Middle Ages, a lot of their stuff hasn't been translated and it hasn't been imported to the philosophical mainstream. So I have a sort of twofold goal, which is bring Lutheranism into academic philosophy more broadly, because I think we have things to offer, but also to bring philosophy to, to Lutherans. Um, Wait, which task is... geek out a little bit. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm just saying <laughs> which both, task? both tests are hard. I don't know which one is harder. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um let's go deep into what we have to learn from medieval philosophy especially in, with a reformation context. You say we ought to go before the reformers um to help understand why they and I 100% agree. I'm, I'm more of a history than a philosophy guy. Um but but tell us that story of medieval philosophy that really shaped the reformation teaching from your perspective, Noah. Sure. Um <clears throat> well, most people are aware, you know, that Luther was questioning the medieval church and the the Bishop of Rome and certain doctrines that were taught and promulgated. And, 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 you know, we might have a sort of confessional understanding, you know, we teach justification by faith. We teach, you know, the three uses of the law. We might have a sort of understanding of, you know, this is what Lutherans teach. And, and, but oftentimes we caricature, the medieval church, and we say, okay, you know, everyone before Luther, they believe that if you sign an indulgence, then you go to heaven. And Luther was the guy who pounded the hammer and said, guess what? You, you don't. It's all free. Well, that's a little bit of a straw man. And and to to dig into sort of the, the say, the virtue theory that was behind all of that, what the, the nuances of what was being confessed, um, that can help you to understand exactly what justification by faith was really all about. In terms of natural theology, there were great resources. Aquinas has all kinds of wonderful proofs for God's existence. And it's not really so much of an academic exercise. They're actually oftentimes quite practical, where you can just sit someone down and say, look, 
Um, this is what we see in the world. Like you see this in the world when you walk down the street. Well, what does that mean? Um, and Aquinas is going to say, well, that means there's a God out there. And no, that doesn't get you, um, doesn't give you faith, right? But it allows you to sort of take the opinions that you find on the street and parse them. One of the one of the greatest tools of actually goes back to Socratic logic, but that the medievals took forward and applied to theology was uh, what I learned uh, at Concordia, Wisconsin, as the three acts of the mind, and that is defining your terms, making your assertions, and giving reasons. And those three tools, I teach them to my students all the time. They're so useful. Whenever you encounter a proposition, you either zoom in and uh, define your terms, or you zoom out and you give some reasons. And that's, I think, probably the most helpful tool that I've acquired along the way. Uh, that's that's <laughs> brilliant. Actually, let's uh, double click on that. Go ahead. I, Go ahead, Jack. You no, know, I've, I've been, you know, I'm, I'm in seminary right now, and we've got this fantastic professor who has a background as an attorney. And what she would say is, if you can, if you can um, define the terms, if we can get everybody to agree on the terms that the word means a certain thing, then uh, she, she would say, then you've won the debate. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> what is the meaning sure. of this word? If you can establish what the meaning of that word is, then all of a sudden there's all of these dominoes that that um, fall into place because of the meaning of that word. And a lot of the arguments that exist across denominations is that we'll take a word, even like the word sin, and we'll define that word differently. Hey, you. Yeah, you listening. Do you like personal finance or real estate? Are you itching to build wealth and create a better life for yourself or your family? Then you need to come check out the Life, Money, and More podcast with real estate agent, YouTuber, and actor, Sage Weiss. This isn't your average finance show. We dive deep and do not sugarcoat topics around money and life. The Life, Money, and More podcast releases two episodes a week just for you because we're all about helping you win in this crazy world we live in. Come join the thousands of listeners on the Life, Money, and More podcast. Yes. And institutionally, I think we have a sort of twofold problem in the synod to where um, we don't have enough clarification at the, uh, I don't want to say higher levels, at the more centralized institutional level. And we have a bit too much of that at the uh, the the ground work, the ground floor, the front lines. I remember, um, um, you know, the, the new catechism with annotations is controversial. I remember back when I was a kid reading the small catechism with explanation, the old blue one, and you know, sixth commandment: you should not commit adultery. And then underneath that, it's all of these like specific like sexual sins, and it's like God forbid, it's X and Y and Z. And and as a kid, you read that and you think, oh, what's that? <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> and there's this attempt to sort of bring these these grittier issues into the mainstream which is can be okay but but the problem the other side of the problem is that at the macro level or at the synodical institutional level it's not clear um what some of these things are now in the case of the the sixth commandment it is where we've been very Mm -hmm. clear on that but in terms of some of the newer stuff you know how does the church think about race how does the church think Mm -hmm. about um certain political opinions like we're not clear on that and and I think we suffer for not being clear on it. Yeah. Mm. 
We have the CTCR. Have you heard of the CTCR, the Commission on Theology and Church Relations? I think I'm saying that right. No, and I think that's yes. the space that we're trying <laughs> to get consensus, define the terms, make assertions, and then give reason based on Scripture for a number of these hot-button issues. I think one of the struggles, though, Noah, is there's just so many, <laughs> right? There's so broad and they're so interconnected, and there's so much then emotion that is tied to a number of these things that I prayed right along with you that we can great get greater clarity around the church's response connected to Scripture and the confessions on a number of these these struggles. So I'm, I'll just wade right into it. One of the struggles right now is uh, I don't think we're defining the terms, making the correct assertions, and giving reason for our assertions in connection with the Concordia Texas struggle. Um, I don't think we're listening well enough and really getting clear um, on what our what our biggest struggles are, because one of them is the the sexuality conversation and uh, the the fear that we're going down an ELCA um, kind of a path toward this kind of open, inclusive kind of perspective. But then, as I listen to like a Don Christian, who's the president at Concordia, Texas, he's like, "No, that's not where we're going." Our, our third way is not – we just haven't defined necessarily um, our cultural expectations while not compromising the truths of, of God's word. I don't think at the higher levels we're listening to one another very, very well and, and again, defining terms. I think your terms, assertion, reasons is a really, really helpful handle for working toward unity or, or not, <laughs> or not, right? But let's be clear. Anything to add to that, Noah? Yeah, so <clears throat> with with the Concordia Texas thing, I I think that the the most charitable way to understand the critique of it is not that anyone right now has nefarious sort of designs, although maybe they do. I just, I don't know, um, but that if you set up an institutional structure that's that's going to be set up for failure, then you know you might not be the board of regents that leads you into. Uh, something bad, but you know, down the road, this is going to happen. And so the argument for a synodical oversight, I think, is that the Senate is less prone to those kinds of inertia than a locally elected board of regents. Um, now, you've got to you've got to be realistic about you know what is the what is it that we're trying to avoid, and where is it that we're trying to go. And one thing I've not been able to figure out is you know what are the specific issues that the Senate has hampered uh, the 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 school on. And then from the other side, <clears throat> where are we afraid we're going to go? Are we are we afraid of being Valpo? Are we afraid of being Pacific Lutheran University? Like what what is the uh, what is the what is the fear? <clears throat> and I I I wasn't I did listen to the the interview with the CTX president. And I couldn't figure out you know what what was the big deal that that the Senate said hey you can't do this and they were like you're cramping our style we're we're not trying to do this um, <laughs> I'm I'm not I couldn't tell so. It's fair. I'm, we're having uh, President Christian on again here shortly, uh, and we're hoping to get greater clarity. We're also having um, tomorrow we interview Christian Preuss, who's the head of the 7-03 uh, Resolution Committee. So, yeah, hopefully we'll get hopefully we'll get more more clear. Um, yeah. Anything else to add about what we should be uh, leveraging from medieval philosophy and Aquinas in general in our work together and working toward unity and clarity, Noah? <clears throat> um, I think that's a, uh, I don't think I'm prepared to, to speak on that actually, uh, <laughs> great. But, great. but, but usually a, a great thing you can do is if there's a topic that you're interested in, just Google like Aquinas and then the topic and find something in the Summa 
and and sort of imbibe the way that he makes distinctions. Um, you know, Gerhard does this too. Um, mm-hmm. In my opinion, maybe not quite as well, but he's also more orthodox. So you've got to negotiate. Yeah. So let's let's jump into um, some statements. And I love that you were we got into a great conversation uh, based on the well-viewed YouTube with uh, Reverend Dr. (laughs) Pat Ferry. And there's another follow up to that one coming out soon as as well. You know, from a leadership perspective, you you may know him as a student, right? And and mm-hmm. the and the culture there at Concordia, Wisconsin, which I do not know. Um, from what I can see, I see a man of reason and charity and love and a consent. This is the way he talks about himself: a consensus builder. And yet, as you were listening to our first interview with him, you even mentioned insidious theology that people can can kind of lean into without even realizing it, and we can have even corrosive ideas. Um, while at the same time recognizing that our enemy is not one another, our enemy is, is against Satan who loves to steal, kill, divide, and destroy. So can you get more specific about what that insidious theology that you're concerned uh, would seep yeah. into the LCMS is? Yeah, so <clears throat> to clarify, you know, I I agree with your assessment of Dr. Fair. I, I believe he's a man of goodwill. Um, you know, I shook his hand at graduation. He is, he's an intelligent man, uh, a man of integrity. And I think... The, the way that bad things creep in is not through any one person saying, oh, I would love to you know, let the devil in today or anything like that. It's not even right. 100% his responsibility as the president because it's a big institution to manage. Um, you know, the administration is, is, is very large. Um, in terms of the bad ideas, you know, I, I have a lot of stories from people who are students with me, before me, after me. And there's just a lot there that I just think to myself, I, I don't, we shouldn't have this at a Lutheran school. And, you know, I, I can get into specifics if that would be helpful, but you know, but it's, I, yeah, I'd like to hear specifics. Sure. I mean, and, and, and as a preface, you know, what I'm not saying is here's one thing. And if you correct the thing, like then it's over. My question is more big picture. Like how do mm-hmm. we get to a point a system that even allowed this, right? Because mm-hmm. you can have one professor come out and say, you know, I don't believe in six-day creation, and then you can get rid of him. But you've got to sort of institutionally think, okay, how did we get here, um, you know, if that's the issue? Or, you know, we have... So the two biggest issues are race and gender. Um, there have been a lot of professors who, um, you know, for example, in, um, in, in the education department, you know, there's been a lot of sort of uh, DIE training, you know, um, readings that would teach white people are inherently racist, that um, anti-trans stuff is oppressive, that, you know, the rules of right language are only determined by whoever stands to benefit from the power of them. In the psychology, there's, um, and again, I don't know if these people are still there, but there was, you know, um, a lot of sort of feminism. There was one uh, event that students were required to attend that, you know, was not really six commandment based, but it was more consent based approach to gender. You know, students mm-hmm. had to go march at this or they would or they would get an F for their participation grade. Um, there was an international center where they put up a pro LGBT sign. So these are all things where it's like, <clears throat> OK, and, and I don't think, by the way, I don't think that president Ferry is for that stuff. In fact, I'm quite sure he's not um, at least, at least with regard to the, the gender stuff. Um, 
Um, the race stuff, I'm not sure. Um, but the question is, why did our institutions get to a point where this was, you know, this came in sort of? Um, so I think that those are insidious ideologies and it's important to ask, you know, how did we get here? I think. And, and the, the problem with an institution is it is true that institutions need to self-preserve, right? They, um, to an extent, you can't be constantly fighting publicity battles and so on. There is a place for, as Luther says, you know, covering your neighbor's sin. You walk in on, you know, a, a situation of fornication, you throw, you know, you cover it. Um, but there is also a point where you have to hold people accountable. And um, for all the sort of uh, vicious and reactionary takes against some of the stuff, uh, there is a, a place, I think, for people to say, look, we, we really want some accountability on this. And we want to know why, you know, if we're sending our kids here, can we count on it to be a Christian environment? And to clarify, Concordia does have, Concordia, Wisconsin, does have what I would call a a Christian bubble. And it's a very large Christian bubble. You know, there's big friend groups you can get into where people are really zealous for, you know, we really want to grow in our faith and so on. And then there's sort of the penumbra where there are students kind of, you know, um, connected, but not really integrated. And I think that this is something close to President Ferry's heart. Uh, my understanding is, he, you know, he converted, um, mm-hmm. he, he might Sorry. have to correct this, but, you know, because of something like this, because he was a student who came in and then was, was brought into, you know, the fold that way. But I think that there's a fallacy that plagues, a lot of our institutional thinking. And that is, we think that there's an inverse correlation between zeal and winsomeness. And I don't believe that for a second. The The young people that I have um, <clears throat> encountered, who I brought to church, you know, who, who have joined the church, they want clear, zealous, you know, they're not going to be attracted to this sort of, <clears throat> um, uh, any sort of mediocre, we don't really know what we are. They want to know what we're for. They want to know what we're against. And uh, we got to have both of those things. Now, that doesn't correlate inversely with winsomeness. You know, you don't have to be a jerk about it. So uh, mm-hmm. I think there, there might be a fallacy there at the institutional <clears throat> level. You hear a lot about supply chains these days, because if the past couple years have taught us anything, it's that an efficient, well-managed supply chain is absolutely critical to keeping businesses successful and consumers happy. I'm Will Haywood, and I host a podcast called All Business, No Boundaries, where we talk about supply chains, how they work, what happens when they don't, and the innovations that are redefining what's possible in the world of logistics. Join me for insightful interviews with thought leaders and industry experts. We discuss how optimizing supply chains can break down the barriers that are holding businesses back. That's All Business, No Boundaries by DHL Supply Chain. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Wow. (laughs) There's a lot to double click on there. So I just want to... I just want to go back and get greater clarity. So at what years were you at Concordia, Wisconsin? So I was there from 2012 through 2016. Hmm. Okay. And those years there were, there was flag LGBT kind of movement in some departments. And even like the one that was the greatest concern, like if I didn't go to this respective 
maybe it's a parade march, whatever, like social justice warrior thing that could impact a grade in one of the like that. I've never heard of that. That's uh, that's quite alarming. Yeah, me. I mean, it's it's <laughs> so I want to be clear and I don't want to misrepresent. Um, it was not my class. It was a friend who took a class. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember what the march was for. I'm, I'm, or what the the volunteer work was exactly for, but um, it was a. Um, I, I don't think it was an LGBT march, but it was, um, it was a requirement to volunteer. I think in, I think it was called Take Back the Night. Although that, I can't remember the specifics okay. are important, but the point is that that there was a very concerted effort. Um, um, especially I think in the psychology department to, you know, I had a, okay, here's a story. And this was, I think an admin, not a, not a professor, but she was told, um, she, she got married, you know, pretty young, I think while she was still in college, but she was told by a, a professor or a professor or an admin, don't get married young. You're going to waste your youth. I'm like, come on, you know, like, um, and now she's happily married, you know, she's got, got some kids and, um, but to hear that when you're a young person, I'll admit that when I was there, I, I was an education major to start with. And a lot of the um, uh, the educational stuff, I didn't realize it was going on. And, uh, you know, until I was like 27. And then I looked back and I thought, you know, that that probably wasn't so great. No, <laughs> and, I, and again, I, I, in, in some of these things, I do believe that, you know, President Ferry met with students and he said, I hear your concerns. And in some cases, you know, they didn't do the thing again. They didn't do the the take back the night again. They didn't, um, you know, I don't know if they quietly got rid of some professors. I don't know. But um, until the church knows that, like, at the systemic level, this is is being taken seriously. I, I, get, the, I get the concern. So, no, I just want to give my own perspective. Things like critical theory have been emerging in the school systems and the university systems and this has been a, a decades-long process. And I have to admit personally that in many ways, I was ignorant to this kind of stuff until you started to see things exploding around 2016 and then into 2019, 2020, like really emerging and kind of surfacing in ways that I had never seen before. And it, it caused, a, I think, a lot of people to have to become more aware of what's been going on in society Whereas that stuff was not necessarily screened for or thought about, or you weren't even necessarily conscious about that. And so I could see where, especially people of a certain generation, that they're playing a lot of catch up. And it's, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's a character flaw of people as much as it is like um, maybe not being ahead of the culture curve and understanding what the trend is. And maybe being behind that because we grew up in a different bubble (laughs) and and there's kind of like maybe a cognitive gap saying, oh, I need to be like proactively aware that this other cultural, uh, you know, thing is emerging and is affecting Uh us in academia, you know? Yeah. So I I agree with that. And the minute the minute that you get into character accusations, um, you get into dangerous territory. Right. Um, I, I, you know, it's or not. It's different territory. I. I'm willing to cut Joe the plumber a break on not understanding you know, the Frankfurt school or something. Sure. But, but in leadership, you need to have people who, um, who are aware of this stuff. You need to have people who are academically aware 
of the situation and also who have a clear compass of what I would call the uh, believe tolerate spectrum. So everyone has things they believe to be true. And you can imagine that a little circle. And then there's a wider circle of things you'll tolerate. You know, you may not believe them, but you'll tolerate them. And then on the outside, there's the things that you won't tolerate. And it's important to have people and, and leaders who are clear about that. Um, you know, they've done they've done graduate work and stuff. They're academically qualified and they're willing to say what they're for. Um, I, I'm so happy that you guys are interviewing the presidential candidates because it gives you a chance to say, you know, what's this person dialed into? And the, the folks that I know who are young, especially um, I don't even want to say on both sides, on all sides, they're just fed up with sort of mealy mouthed, you know, we're for hope, we're against fear. It's like, you know, I, we want to be hope, you know, we don't want to be driven by a spirit of fear, but everybody's got stuff they're afraid of. So what are we afraid of? What are we going to do about it? Um, yeah. I like you, Noah. You're you're awesome, dude. I could I could spend a lot of time. I wish I hope I hope we stay connected because I have a lot to to learn from you. I want to go deeper into one of the points of emphasis you had in in some of what Dr. Ferry said needs to change to solve our numerical decline. Uh, you spoke about two two variables that he spoke about needing to see some sort of a change in growing diversity or ethnicity, you know, and then and then an openness toward a variety of different different worship styles. And you could label it, you know, contemporary or more traditional, liturgical. My my bias right now, because there's contemporary, and I've been a part of uh, you know high church, very high church. I would like to define the terms. We're going to start with worship style, and then we'll close with one that's a little bit more maybe controversial with ethnicity. Um, but I think we're at a different season right now, Noah, um, as it relates to the worship wars. There's going to be different instrumentation. Where I would like to draw the line is around two things. I think we ought to sing sing songs that are theologically sound. And I think we mm-hmm. ought to be writing songs that are theologically sound from a Lutheran confession for maybe modern instrumentation. And at the same time, I would love to see, no matter if it's contemporary or traditional, I would love to see the the core of our liturgy preserved. I think these are, are wonderful things for us to agree on, from the invocation to the benedic- benediction, confession, absolution, obviously the time in the word, prayers of the church, Lord's Supper, our sacramental standards. I would love to get greater clarity on that, at the same time kind of saying we exist within congregations that have a more maybe modern and maybe a more bent toward traditional worship. Anything more to add there? That's where I personally would love to hear more clarity from those that are, are leading right now. Anything to add to that? Noah? <clears throat> yeah. Um, that, well, that sounds very Lutheran, right? Uh, Luther says, you know, <laughs> man, I wish that everyone would do things the same, but they're not going to do them all the same. So here's the, here's where we draw the line. Um, in terms of, so, so of course the one thing that, that um, Luther didn't have to deal with was, was sort of, you know, soft rock. And that's usually what people are talking about when they talk about instrumentation. Yeah. Um, I think that what we need, what we really need and I have not seen this at all. And I think it's beyond my capabilities to do it. Um, I know one uh, academic musician who might be able to do it. We've got to have a discussion of the, the, the of musical style that is not just going to say, okay, it's adiaphora. It's like, I, sure, maybe it is adiaphora, you know, but what is it doing here? What is the actual difference between singing Christ Jesus land, death, strong bands and singing in Christ alone and singing, you know, Our God by Chris Tomlin, it's like, 
you know, of course, the, the theology and the words is important. Everybody knows that. But what is going on in the music? What does the what is this kind of music doing to your soul? Uh, Lutherans love to say, "Oh, what does it teach?" Yeah, teaching is part of it. What? It, but what? What does it do to your soul to sing this way instead of that way? And then we'll have a solid base to go on. Um, besides just genetic arguments, like, "Oh, you know, it started with Elvis and he was perverse," and so, well, okay, that's a clue. But um, but but what is the mindset? this puts you in in terms of worship style um yeah i don't know if that is real no, is helpful cool. jack you, any follow-up to that jack what do you think well I, you know i'm a musician so a little bit about my background is uh uh no I, I was um i'm a retired musician from the u.s army band and so i've uh okay a drummer so cool. i've got experience playing drums in contemporary worship settings i've also played percussion in orchestral you know, uh, place with, I've done hallelujah chorus with, you know, a 30 man choir, you know, I've, I've experienced music in all of its forms. And so my, my, my personal perspective on music is that there's a style of music and then there's, um, what you can, um, the emotions, the experience that you can arouse in people through that particular style. And so, um, you know, my own philosophy, my own experience, because I've had to live this, I've had to live where I've actually performed in every single style of music. That was what was demanded as, of me as an army band musician. I had to know, I had to be able to move from an 1800s, you know, Philip Sousa march to now I'm going to go and I'm going to play a rock concert for a bunch of recruits and boot camp, right? That um, all of these forms of music do the exact same thing with people. They can they can create intimacy. They can arouse passion. Um, they can you know if if done a certain way, they can create anger. They can create desire. They like they all have their own ways of of doing the exact same thing in people. And so I I, I would just encourage this is kind of a musician's perspective just to kind of understand that there's um, there's a style and genre of music and that all of those styles and genres of music can actually kind of do the same thing for, for audiences. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I would, I would, um, this is going to be a longer conversation, but my, my pushback to that is there is a, um, so, you know, in, in, let's say in church a, they're doing setting three with an organ in church B, they're doing setting uh, a little more creative. And then the instrumentation is different, or even say the same setting, same setting, but you've got, like the best that, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, soft rock uh, songs theologically. Okay. Sure. These yeah. people are usually very reticent to change. They, if you come in as a pastor and say, hey, we're going to switch to um, traditional mu- organ music. We're going to pay for an organ. We're going to have it. Or if you come in and say, you guys are doing traditional, change to contemporary or close, you know, which has happened uh, in our synod. Mm-hmm. People do these things. Um, uh, leaders do these things. And people are re- resistant to change. Now, yep. my question would be, why are they resistant to change? Is it because it's just what they've always done? I think that's a little, it, it could be patronizing to say, oh, you only like this because, you know, traditional music would do the exact same thing, but you're just, you just don't get it. I think that they see something specific in, in this practice and something that they perceive to be uniquely beautiful about, about their music. And, um, 
I agree with you that all, you know, all music yeah. does inspire passion, it, but what passion? What it, exactly? It just, well, it, it's the exact same one. It can, it can, you know, the words and the music and the tone and the ta- the timbre and the the rhythm, all of these things, like they get expressed there. You know, you see expressions of this across all genres of music. Like I'm not a big fan of uh, hip hop and rap music, but even in that kind of format that, that it exists. So just to kind of go on your, your thought yeah. about that, Noah, I, I am not, an advocate of going into a church where there's a thriving traditional liturgical expression of worship and telling them that they need to stop doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, I would much rather, I would much rather uh, if a church is eager to expand, um, expand its audience of people that they want to start preaching to, that they would create an additional service. Right. um, That. that So, yeah. yeah. So I, I I think uh, definitely not making recommendations about like that, I'm, I'm more thinking of like, okay, so, you know, if I am, why, why is it that I want to listen to Bach while I write an essay, but you know, um, well, hip hop, Mostaf or MF doom or something like that while I wash mm-hmm. the dishes. Um, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think it's just habituation. I think there's something in the music that, that is helpful for different things. I don't know, but that's, right. you know, maybe, maybe well, and, and again, I could go on this because I would say I love Bach. And then I love listening to Dave Rubeck trio doing uh-huh. take five and a good music theory would professor would say that Bach would be an amazing jazz musician um, because he was so improvisational in what he did. Sure. But it would yeah. be jazz. <laughs> so I don't want to listen to Bach while I'm at a lounge drinking. <laughs> right. a martini. I want to listen to exactly. jazz. You know? Exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, this is good. This is good. I, we, we could continue to talk worship. I think there's openness and charity and worship matters in style of worship matters and yeah. and having the solid liturgy matters right it's it's very important mm-hmm. and i think lutherans with a variety of different styles obviously it, you can't deny that the contemporary movement was influenced by the Jesus movement along with yeah. modern instrumentation from Elvis and but, you know modern rock it, we were definitely thing, influenced yeah. but but let's let's kind of like hang on that for just a second tim because like um you know, I would just say Christ Greenfield, we value both. We are regarded as a church that leans into both styles of worship with vigor. And when we do contemporary worship, it is a liturgical expression of contemporary worship. So you will hear Absolutely. a modern song. We we make sure that the lyrics are appropriate lyrics, um, but then we'll recite the creeds. Right. And so people are getting both. They're getting an experience that is both modern so you know relevant to them but then also timeless in our in our in our confession right and right so there is a difference mm -hmm. yeah okay that's all i'm I'm moderating i'm moderating right now yeah 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 yeah. good there is a difference there is a difference um and i want to i want to now pause on that conversation to close with uh this desire um by you know myself and others, I love if our if our churches are in diverse communities, that we would start to mirror whatever that diverse community is with the um, honesty that we are by and large a German European uh, church body, and not even two hundred years old yet. And so we don't need to disparage that we are 98% white necessarily. And at the same time, these are two things we should hold in tension. And at the same time, we should pray for those who are in our unique, maybe it's more urban 
communities uh, for our churches, liturgical congregations, to go after those that are diverse and to do what we can to recognize indigenous leaders and, and all of that. Um, so you you spoke a lot about ethnic diversity, and there are some, even President Harrison, who will say what we're walking through right now is a demographic challenge, not having enough babies and things, and and then folks kind of snarkily attack that on the other side to, well, that's anti-mission. I, I think both... now. Again, I love to work toward unity. I think both things are true, and certain sides are talking with an overemphasis on diversity and inclusion, and that goes down a certain path that we're like, whoa, hey, watch out, oppressed, oppressor, that whole kind of line. And then in the other side, um, some of us are saying... we don't have to be ashamed of of who we are as as a church body. So any anything to add? You wrote beautifully on the ethnicity conversation on our YouTube uh, channel. So anything else to add as we come down the home stretch here, Noah? Sure. Um, so yes, the the um, there's the demographic side of things. I think the best way to understand that side of the issue is not that like um, you know we're going to fight some numerical decline. Uh, Joe Barron has done great stuff on, on, you know, that the statistics, you know, it's not so much that like, oh, we're going to out reproduce or something crude like that. It's although there is, you know, there's a certain element of that. That's true. Mm-hmm. Um, but that a healthy theological culture, um, is just naturally going to come along with this. Um, I, I re I've recently changed my opinion on contraception, which is something that, um, maybe it's a whole nother, a whole nother, uh, discussion, <laughs> but I, I've, I've sort of, um, but so that's a whole thing, you know, what goes along with this, this culture that we have in terms of how we think about our families and our demographics, the ethnic thing. Um, I agree with you that, you know, we shouldn't be ashamed of who we are. Um, and that I also agree that if a congregation, and again, this is a congregational thing, not a synodical thing. If a congregation is in a place where there's very different people, um, you might look and say, look at, we look very different from our neighborhood. Why is that? And, you know, oftentimes it's going to be linguistic. Sometimes it might be cultural. Um, maybe sometimes it's even racial where, um, you know, where, where people g- genuinely think I can't come to church because these people don't like people of my race. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now in that specific situation, I would say you have a problem because you are, you are not willing to love your neighbor with the gospel above all categories, you know, male, female, Jew, Gentile. Um, yeah. But at the, at the synodical level, what is, I, I I'm worried that the discourse around this is not just that specific. It's not just saying, Hey, urban churches should be careful to be linguistically aware, culturally aware, and maybe racially aware. It's this sort of more vague general sense that we really need to be targeting the urban mission. We really need to be targeting um, non-white entities. Uh, I've heard something similar like this recently from uh, uh, a St. Louis admissions person. It was just a video, but um, I don't know what they're working on. But those are the things that I'm more concerned about. Like if we start to feel guilty about, you know, um, sort of of an artificial, it's sort of the, um, the same side of the coin as like back when people wanted to send lots of money to Africa instead of just go talk to their neighbor about Jesus. Cause then they can feel like, you know, I've sent my capital over, you know, to darkest Africa and that's my mission. It's like, well, but your neighbor needs to hear the gospel and your neighbor, whatever color mm-hmm. they are. So mm-hmm. it's more of the macro level that I'm concerned about. I think. What, what do you think that's they should fair. target? You're, you're, 
maybe hesitant to say, I'm going to target a certain demographic group, a certain racial yeah. group. But I what don't should think be they a should. target? You don't think there should need, be a target? What we need to do is to plant churches. And I I don't yes. care where they are. We need to plant them in places where there aren't churches. Um, <laughs> yes. I think so. And then, of course, we need to equip the churches that do exist um, to to you know, to, to, to reach out better to who is in their community, but we need to plant churches. Um, uh, I've been inspired by what Adam Koontz has said about this. He's just this eternal optimist guy who is like, we need to plant churches. We need to not get caught up in all this negativity. Like, what are we going to do? What are we going to build? That's something where even if, even where I sort of might come down on issues differently than you guys, um, we, I I say this to my students too. I say, um, you know what? A Democrat and a Republican and a socialist and a fascist are all going to look, none of them are going to look at a homeless man and say, I'm glad he's there and I'm glad that he's suffering. No, Mm. we just have different ways, you know, that we think we can help this guy. And once you're on the same page about first principles, you can be on the same page about everything else. That's good. Wow. This has been awesome, Noah. Thank you for your generosity of time. People want to connect with you. How can they do so, bud? Um, I would email me at... uh, noahan5 at gmail.com n-o-a-h-h-a-h-n number five at gmail and uh, i'll try to respond yeah i love it i love it thanks for staying connected to the church and for speaking honestly clarifying terms and i pray that there are more of these conversations not just on podcasts but just people who love one another and recognize we're loved by the lord and (laughs) the gospel is the center point of our entire lives that is where especially in this polarized day and age bro that's where we have to start with those first principles of our necessity to be loved by a god who sees us as lovable despite how unlovable we often often are so thank you so much for this time uh this is lead time sharing is caring please like subscribe uh, comment it really helps keep the conversation going even if like noah you've got a difference of opinion regarding what's been said we love to hear it and maybe we'll even invite you on and have a good time learning from one another so thanks so much noah and jack uh, wonderful work we'll see you next week on lead time peace god bless you've been listening to lead time a podcast of the unite leadership collective The ULC consults and brings together cohorts of congregations to build the culture, systems, and structures of intentional discipleship multiplication. To go deeper with us, create a free login on uniteleadership.org for access to exclusive materials and resources. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for next week's episode.